reading is uh, Luke 22, those uh, verses when Jesus has his anguishing prayer. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "'Pray that you will not fall into temptation.' He withdrew about a stone's throw um, beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And the second Bible reading is Hebrews, chapter 4, starting at verse 14, and then it'll go over to chapter 5. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could come and save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and we'll explore this together. Let me pray. Father, we approach you now with humility, uh, for you are holy, but at the same time we approach you with confidence, because you are the God of all grace, both humility and confidence. 
And so we ask you to speak to us and teach us what we need to learn for Jesus' sake. Amen. There was a period of time many years ago uh, here at Churchill when Qantas's chief, then chief marketing officer came to church. He was investigating the faith, came for a number of months. And in dialogue with him, he was clearer to me about what we should say and how we should say it as a church. He said, whatever we say, coming from a marketing point of view, a comms point of view, he said, whatever we say, it must be immediately relevant or I won't hear it. I won't hear it. And he said to me, no two steps, just tell me directly how I benefit. Now that makes sense for a comms guy. Now the truth is you didn't stay for too long and there were lots of complicated reasons for that. But in the end, part of the problem was we kept working our way through books of the Bible, you know, which are strange. They're relevant in the first instance to Jewish people in antiquity. And so if you're going to teach the Bible, there has to be at least two steps then and now. You can't just say, you know, you want to fly to Dallas in one flight? You've got it. That's one step. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Today, as we reconnect with the book of Hebrews, an anchor for our souls, you'll hear these words. You heard these words a moment ago. You hear these four words, the order of Melchizedek or Melchizedek. No one quite knows. It's ancient Hebrew. Now, these are four irrelevant words, if ever I've seen them. They're profoundly irrelevant. What is that? A Catholic order? You know, a Jewish fraternity? A house in Harry Potter? Whatever it is, it, it is not and cannot be immediately relevant to anybody in this room. I once had a, an older gent knock on the door here at the office, and he told me he was from the Knights of the Order of St. John. He had a takeaway coffee in one hand and a croissant in a paper bag in the other, and the only thing I thought was, you know, is the coffee and croissant for me? The Order of St. John? What is that? The Order of Melchizedek? I'm afraid I lost the Qantas CMO at the word order. Now, tonight I'm not going to explore what these words mean. I'll touch on it like the writer of Hebrews does, but he'll come back to it in detail in chapter 7. So we'll look at this on, on, June, on the, June the 25th uh, with Rob Forsyth. But today I simply want to contend that the presence of these words is important for your walk with God. The presence of them. What do I mean? Well, work with me on this. When you walk with someone that you love, wanting to draw close, you listen to them, you listen to what's important to them, and you believe that when they speak, they have your, their, your best interests at their heart. Well, God has placed this section in Holy Scripture, so he's effectively saying, I want you to know about the order of Melchizedek. Something like, when you get that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, I promise you, your life will change. You will change. You'll gain something priceless and eternal something you can't buy or earn, namely confidence before a holy God. For years I've been recommending this book for married couples. It's John Gottman, um, Seven Principles for a Healthy Marriage, and one principle, I think it's the fifth one, is uh, to, third principle, to turn towards each other instead of away. A couple that turns towards each other will be willing to listen and learn and lean into what the other person thinks and feels. In fact, he contends that a couple can look distance, distant 
but be facing towards each other, and they're in a better situation than a couple that are, appear close but are facing away from each other. Now, I use this by way of illustration. A follower of Jesus faces towards God, not away from him. You say, I face towards God, even though what I'm hearing seems weird or irrelevant because God knows and I don't. So faith, then, is facing towards God. And faithlessness, which is a theme in Hebrews, is facing or turning away from God. So what is this order? It is, at the very least, a chance for you and me to say, here's another part of the Bible that seems weird, so I'm pressing in. So listen in, because here's the context. Son though he was, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's a strange verse, but, you know, I'm facing towards, not away. Two steps, not one. Through suffering and testing, Jesus could have given up, but he didn't. He learned his father's obedience, or rather his father's business, which is obedience, from the ground up, even unto death. And in resurrection, he is now perfectly able to represent you to God. He is the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. So I take it there's nothing more relevant in life. I love the next line. I could have written it myself, but I didn't. He writes, we've much more to say about this. We'll come back to that in chapter 7. But it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. You're not facing towards. You're switching off. So in the meantime, are you in? Are you trying to understand? Because there's plenty more weird stuff in the Bible, plenty more where that came from. But as we like to say here at Churchill, all treasure worth finding must be dug for. The context of the book Context is the recipients are about to go through a time of testing, or they are going through a time of testing, a time of need. And it can be summed up with a verse in chapter 10 where he says, there was a moment you saw the light, you thought things would go from good to great. They actually went from bad to worse. He writes, back then, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult. Who wants that? And persecution? I don't. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Who does that? But you did all of it because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You had a hope in the resurrection, even though you could die. They haven't, they're not at the point of dying. Later, he'll say, you have not resisted at the point of shedding your blood. So you haven't got there yet. And so he says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. And so it begs the question, where does one get such confidence? And the answer is, surprisingly, from within. But no, lest you think I'm about to give you a Disney philosophy, you know, the powers within you. Unless you mishear me, not from within self, but the confidence comes from within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Trinity Sunday. Our confidence comes because of who God is within himself, not who we are. 
there is his son, a Messiah, representing us to the Father as a great high priest. This dovetails in nicely with last week's teaching that the Holy Spirit intercedes with groans too deep for words. But the idea of the high priest is there in verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We profess the faith, let us hold firmly to it, confidently to it. Verse 15, the high priest is mentioned again with a double negative, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. In other words, we do have a high priest who is able to empathise with our weaknesses. So this passage is about Jesus, our great high priest, and the benefits that flow. So having to respectfully disregard my friend the CMO's advice, I'm going to dig in at least three steps here, really. I'm going to start with chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, 1 through 10, and then come back to chapter 4. Um, I want to talk about those high priests, a uh, little history lesson, and then that one particular high priest, talk about Jesus, and then some pay dirt, what it means for him to be our high priest, back to chapter 4. So firstly, those high priests, the writer takes us back in history to the period of the book of Leviticus, something that might have been accessible to the original hearers, but not accessible to us, unless you grew up in Sunday school. You can see it in verse 5. It's effectively, the writer saying, you know something about Judaism, that every high priest is selected from among the people and appointed to represent the people in matters relating to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, we're not ancient Jews, so we find it hard to understand why would we need a priest? We're not Roman Catholics either. We don't assume that the priest gives you God. It comes by faith, or rather by our priest, and his name is Jesus Christ, not, you know, Justin Moffat or, or, or any other priest. So this idea is removed from us by at least one step, so we have to sit with it, face towards God. Ancient Jews had a priestly caste, a group of men who represented the people to God. One of those priests had been called the high priest, and they had many high priests because they all died. The three qualifications for high priest are, one, you've got to be one of the people from among the people. That's in verse one. And you've got to secondly represent the people to God. You've got to be one of the people representing the people to God. And thirdly, you must be chosen by God. You can see that in verse one, from among the people, to represent the people to God. He has to do things to allow people to be able to approach God. And in verse 1, it's to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And thirdly, the third uh, qualification for being a high priest is in verse 4. No one takes his honour upon himself, but he receives it when called by God or appointed by God, just as Aaron was. You got it? One, one of us to represent us, chosen by God. But because of these three things, the high priest, in theory, can relate to humans in their sinfulness and to God in their exercise of worship or the exercise of their office. And because they, in theory, can relate, verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, the ones who feel wobbly, since he himself is subject to weakness. He knows what it feels like. Because he is weak. This is why he has to offer sins, sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. 
And so he has an opportunity to be empathetic as he brings people to God. Sidebar, you read the Gospels, and there's no way that the high priest, when Jesus faced execution, was empathetic. So, you know, they didn't always do the job, but in theory they could. The verb there, to deal gently, means to restrain or moderate your feelings. In other words, when someone tells you they've done something bad, you don't freak out. Or, on the other hand, inappropriately jump in and reassure people. The moment they tell you about the sins, like they do on Facebook. No, no, sister, you're so great, brother. You're so great. You're so great. Oh, no, you're great. To deal gently and appropriately. But he does so because he himself is a sinner, so he can relate when he offers a sacrifice. He does so for himself and for the people. Now, at the heart of all of this is the holiness of God. We have such a light apprehension of his holiness and we only get a glimpse of it when Bronwyn reads to us Isaiah 6, the, the, uh, the threshold of the temple shook. Um, train of the robe filled the temple. Um, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You know, no one can see God and lips. You can't just approach God as a mate. You say, I feel okay within myself, so he must feel okay with me. He's not your mate. If you saw God in your sins, you would be blown away like chaff. You would melt in fear. And so, old covenant, you need the priest, the high priest, to make a sacrifice on your behalf so that that holy God can say, this one is mine. That's those high priests then. From verse 5, the writer of Hebrews then says, but now things are different. You now have a forever high priest. All those other ones died one particular high priest who is both the priest and the sacrifice, the priest and the lamb, one particular sacrifice who through resurrection is able to represent you to God. And so secondly, I want to talk about that high priest, one high priest, a particular one. Jesus fits into the category of high priest and then he blows it out of the water through resurrection. So look at verse 5, relating to verse 4. No one chooses themselves. They're going to be called by God in the same way. Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, Psalm 2, you are my son, that I have become your father. And he says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we'll get to the order of Melchizedek on June 25. But you can get ahead, if you like, by reading Genesis 14. I'm not sure if you'll figure it out by reading that. Uh, You can read the all-important Psalm 2, but even more important, Psalm 110. You can do all that at home, facing towards God. But the point here is that Jesus has the third qualification. God chose him. He didn't choose himself. You are my son. You are the forever priest. Now, what about the other two of the people to represent the people? Well, he is one of us in suffering. That's the point here. He knows your experience if you're suffering right now. He knows your experience, but didn't give in. It's like Job, you know, battered around, but was standing at the end. He was without sin. And I believe verse 7 refers to his moment in the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his horrible death. We're told in verse 7, he offered, Jesus offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears 
to the one who could save him from death. That's why he offered the prayers and petitions up to that God because, or to his father because he knew that God could save him from death and he didn't save him. Well, he didn't save, he didn't, didn't. He didn't, he had to go to the cross, but he was saved in the resurrection and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Did you hear when Bromman read Luke 22, Jesus cry in the garden, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to die. Yet not my will, but yours be done. There is his reverent submission. He was heard. And did you hear Brahman read? And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And God did so save him from death because God raised Jesus to life again. The point being that this high priest is one of us. He's experienced suffering, and he learned the hard way what it means to obey God in tough times. That's what he learned obedience means. It didn't mean that he was disobedient, then he learned to obey, but the obedience he learned through suffering. In other words, he knows what the hearers of Hebrews are experiencing because he's, he's experienced it. And now raised from the dead, he isn't just one of those high priests, but the great high priest, verse 8, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect in resurrection, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and he was designated by God to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. There it is, face towards him. All right, so what? What's the pay dirt? Well, let's talk about our high priest back to chapter 4, verse 14. Here it is. Here's the good news. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, right, not just ascended into a temple in Jerusalem, most holy place, he's ascended into heaven. More of that will be made in the weeks to come. He's named Jesus, the Son of God. Since we've got that great high priest, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's the pay dirt. Stay, stand until the end. You profess the faith, hold firmly to it. Don't give in just because being a Christian is unpopular or because it might seem strange to those you work with to admit it or framed in the media as odious or toxic. Hold firmly to the faith you profess. Now, for some of us, that will mean we'll need to reignite the faith that we profess. For others, it will mean that we need to dial up the confidence and the reason for such confidence, namely that you have a divine ally. Amen? You've got a divine ally in the heavens, in heaven. Jesus, the great high priest, with unfettered access to the Father, and he pleads your case, he is the Lamb of God. Unless you think that this one is above it all, doesn't know what you're experiencing, I promise you he is in it all. A point made by incarnation, and a point made by the Garden of Gethsemane scene, and a point made by the death of Jesus Christ. Because he wasn't just willing to die, willing to die for his faith, Every Christian should be willing to do that. But rather, he did die for his faith, and he did it for you, for me, for your sins and mine, not for his own. And so verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tested, prodded, 
suffered, tempted in every way as we are, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He didn't waver, didn't wobble. The word to empathise there is not the word to sympathise, which is um, to sit and listen and feel the pain with somebody. One commentary I read today said, uh, yesterday said, um, said this, he said, the, uh, in the Holocaust you could meet somebody who'd been into a death camp, into Auschwitz or something, and meet with them afterwards and have genuine sympathy. You could actually listen and feel the weight of it, genuinely feel it, with tears in your eyes. This word here is not the word for that. This is the word that says he was in the camp, in the bed next to you, because he's been through it all, and therefore is able to help us in our time of weakness. Do you mind if I say, Arnold, do you mind if I say something just briefly? Arnold lost his father um, three weeks ago, just come back from Indonesia, and um, it's been a strange delight to watch you both suffer, but also have hope in his faith. And I just said to Arnold on the way in, I said, I've not experienced that yet. Both my parents are still living. And I said to him, you know, maybe when the time comes, and it will come, I'll come to him. Because he'll have experienced it. And he can give me some glimpses as to what I might experience and some paths forward. Thank you, Arnold, for letting me say that. It's the same thing here with Jesus. He's experienced it all. There was a powerful skit that I was a part of as a teenager back when I did skits at church, the glorious 80s. And in this skit, there was a, uh, a group of, of, of uh, Holocaust victims after the Holocaust who were angry about the Holocaust, naturally, and they wanted to put God on trial because they said that God, as he's presented to us, sits above it, above it all and doesn't know how, I f how we feel. He doesn't have the right to judge. And in the conclusion of this little skit, this play, they nominate what God should have to experience if he was to genuinely um, have a right or, or empathise with us. And so the final lines are, let him be born into a race that's despised. Let him be born a Jew. Let God be born a Jew. Try that. And let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Let that cloud hang over his life. And let him experience a grave misjustice like being tried for a crime he didn't commit. Let God experience that. And let him die a horrible death at the hands of an oppressor. I promise you, friends, this is your God. And it is unique among the monotheistic, pagan religions and all spiritualities. It doesn't exist outside of the Christian gospel. I've been reading um, Tom Holland's Dominion. And I believe it is so. So, no excuses. Verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The writer is opening up a new way to pray, not groveling, but with confidence. Because it's a throne of grace. Because God sits on a throne of grace, you can have what the word here means, open frankness. That's what the word confidence means, open frankness with God so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You'll be ready to take on the world, for God has taken on you and has enabled you to take a stand until the end. Let's talk about the order of Melchizedek and your walk with God. A chance to say, you know, I don't know what that means. It's not immediately relevant, but you, God, know, and so I'm going to press in and find out. 
But remember Gottman's words, turn towards one another rather than away from one another. And I want you to do that with God, to approach God with freedom and, and confidence. But it turns out that in the gospel, God has turned towards you. He sits on a throne of grace, mercy, kindness. He could have turned away, but he didn't. Christ went to the cross for you and for me. And this means that when the bad times come, the time of need, then you'll have what you need, which is mercy and grace from the throne of grace. Or rather, you'll have who you need, namely the one God chose to stand in your place, Jesus Christ, so that you could stand in any place. So I urge you, face towards him with confidence. Let's pray. In fact, what I want to do um, is pray. And I've got just some prayers for the world and for ourselves and those who are suffering. And then we'll sing the two songs at the end together. Is that okay? One after the other. Let me pray. Father, we here now approach you with confidence and with boldness, with bold frankness, recognizing that if we were left alone in our sins, it should not have been this way. If we were just left alone in our sins, we should be blown away like chaff before a holy God. But for these two beautiful truths, you sit on the throne of grace and Christ is our great high priest. Without this, we have nothing, but with it, we have everything. So give us a fresh insight today and every day that we can live with confidence even in the face of persecution and find grace and help for our time of need. Merciful Lord, you know our hearts. You know that our hearts can be unruly and our affections wayward. You know that we can desire too much and follow the devices and desires of our hearts. You alone can order our unruly wills and affections. So teach us, Father, to love what you command and to desire what you promise. Help us to have a heart that, help us to have a heart that beats as your heart beats. We pray this so that among the changes and chances of this world, our hearts may be surely fixed, firmly fixed, where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray for those who are in a time of danger or testing or temptation. Merciful God, you know that we live in the midst of many dangers and temptations and that because we are weak and frail, we cannot always stand. Jesus, you know such testing. You know what weakness feels like and yet without sin. You know the suffering of people all over the world, those who are being persecuted for their faith, happening more in this day and age than ever before. Grant to those suffering persecution in other nations strength and protection. Give us strength and protection to support us in all dangers and carry us through all testings and temptations and especially those of us who are suffering from grief or loss, uh, those of us who are suffering from loneliness or mental health issues, those of us who are facing a difficult time at work, maybe with a boss or colleagues 
those of us who are feeling weak in our faith, grant us strength and protection through Jesus Christ our Lord. And lastly, we pray for the world. God of the nations whose sovereign rule brings justice and peace, have mercy on our broken and divided world. We join millions in praying for the situation in the Ukraine, bring about peace in that nation, but not just for them, for all the corners of the world. We don't even know about them. Our, our media don't present them. Why would they? And we can't find them. And yet in dark corners of the world, in nations, in communities, in homes, um, the experience of the broken and divided world is real. And so we pray that you'll establish in our hearts your peace. We pray that you'll establish your peace in the hearts of all and banish from our hearts and their hearts the spirit that makes for war, that all races and peoples may learn to live as members of one family and in obedience to your laws through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.